0: My major pain has, has been invisible.
1: The mobility aid makes it better. It gives me freedom. It can get to the core beliefs we have about ourselves. Don't ever
0: think you're alone. Welcome to Major Pain. I'm your host, Jesse Mercury, and this week we'll be speaking with Heather, who has a self-described laundry list of diagnoses, including Sjogren's syndrome, vasculitis, SLE, lupus, new daily persistent headache disorder, gut dismobility, SIBO, or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, and endometriosis. This is our first time covering several of these diagnoses on the podcast, and Heather does a fantastic job of describing each condition one by one and what the symptoms feel like from a first-hand perspective. Heather's diagnostic journey was long and complicated. She went through many years getting no treatment at all because she couldn't get doctors to listen to her. She was first diagnosed with Sjogren's syndrome and vasculitis at 28 years old, which she describes as one of the most validating experiences of her entire life. Over the next few years, her diagnoses would continue to pile up, and with each new diagnosis, she would have to learn to manage that new disease and search for medication to try to help her symptoms. Around the time she was diagnosed with lupus at 32 years old, she had an extreme flare-up where she was almost completely bedbound. As a last resort, she ended up taking prednisone for over two and a half years while searching for a medication to control her lupus, which she ended up finding. This medication is called Benlista, and she describes it as the most helpful medication of her entire regimen. It was fascinating to hear how all of Heather's diagnoses interact and interweave with each other, and it was amazing to hear about the lessons Heather has learned along the way, about being grateful for what she has, and learning to keep fighting through such adversity. Heather was determined to find purpose within her medical upheaval, and to make something positive come out of all of this pain. So she ended up creating a children's book called I'm the Biggest Helper with Mama's Autoimmune Disease. Since releasing this book to the public, Heather has received meaningful feedback that her story is helping other families cope with chronic illness. This is another sensational conversation. There's so much to learn, and Heather's just an amazing podcast guest. She did a really incredible job. Towards the end of the podcast, I will say that I really felt a kinship with Heather, um, you know, which I so often do talking to people with chronic illness. But the way she describes what she's been through is so relatable and so powerful. So, another really, really special episode of the show. I'm so excited to share with you, and we'll get to it in just a couple minutes. A couple years ago, my illness was in such a bad spot. And out of that, I started thinking, what do I want to do with my life? What do I want to create? I want to make something that keeps me going uh, for as long as I can, but also something to leave behind that I care about, that I'm passionate about. And my, I had two answers to that question. One of them was this podcast. And the other one was, I want to be in Star Trek. (laughs) So I started green screening myself into Star Trek The Next Generation, one episode at a time, but I turned it into a sort of absurdist comedy. Uh, And it's something that I've been continuing to do. I love it so much. I'm having so much fun doing it. And a couple of really cool things have happened because of it. And one of those amazing things has actually been a secret for months. I didn't want to tell anyone about it until I knew for sure it was real. And it is finally... Available for public consumption, so I can finally tell you about it here on the podcast. So I post my Star Trek videos on several platforms, but they've been particularly successful on TikTok, on my uh, my page dedicated just for this, at Jesse Mercury. And months and months ago, I was utterly surprised to see that I had been followed by Pandora Box, who is a world-famous drag queen who's been on uh, RuPaul's Drag Race three times, Um, In my opinion, most notably on a recent All-Star season where she did an absolutely amazing job. Talked a lot about, you know, being a nerd, loving Star Trek, all that sort of stuff. So she followed me on TikTok. I followed her back. I was so excited. Sent her a personal message. And she said, hey, I'd love to be in one of your videos. And I'm like, you mean it? Because I will absolutely take you up on that. So I wrote a uh, skit for Pandora. I sent it to her. She loved it. She ended up filming her part of it, sending it back to me. I put this video together and it just came out last week. So for the first time in my life, I was able to write something for an actual TV star who I respect and admire and see her deliver dialogue that I had written. It was an incredible collaboration, so much fun. She was so generous and incredible to work with. And her performance is absolutely sensational. So, the video came out last Saturday and I posted it on Instagram. I, uh, I have my personal Instagram, Jesse underscore Mercury. And I made Pandora a collaborator on the post, which means that it shows up on my Instagram feed and her feed as well. And she has like 400,000 uh, followers on Instagram. I split it up into two halves and, and released the first half Saturday, second half on Sunday on Instagram. And the first half in particular really blew up. And it was just so much fun seeing all these comments coming in all day. And one of them was from. Will Wheaton. If you're not familiar, Will Wheaton plays Wesley Crusher on Star Trek The Next Generation. He was on the show as a teenager and he's actually in the scene that Pandora and I are green screened into. So I have now made a TikTok with a world famous drag queen and someone from my favorite show in the entire world saw it and liked it. And I'm just riding high on that. A real achievement for me. If you want to check it out, it's on my TikTok, at Mercury, Instagram, jesse underscore mercury, and YouTube, YouTube.com slash Jesse Mercury fi For the best viewing experience, I recommend YouTube because you can get it up on the big screen. But the version with the most views, if you want to see, you know, other people's comments, that's over on Instagram. If you're enjoying this podcast, there are several great ways for you to support this show. Uh, I'll keep it brief today and say you can find out all of the ways to support the show on our website, majorpainpodcast.com slash support. Uh, that includes leaving a positive review and rating on Apple Podcasts, or any other podcast platform, signing up to support the show monthly through Patreon with financial contributions, signing up through Rare Patient Voice to participate in research studies and surveys where you can get paid and support the podcast at the same time. Uh, there's links in the show notes of this episode, or you can just head to the website. As I said, majorpainpodcast.com slash support. I do have to thank our Patreon producers who are supporting this show at the highest tier of $25 per month. Steve Kavanaugh, Ensign Q, Trish O'Brien, Hipster Leia and Chris Fowler. I did that out of order today. Not sure why. But speaking of Chris Fowler, I'm heading to Florida this weekend for his wedding. I'm very excited about it. Chris was on the podcast uh, a while back because he's a pain researcher. Uh, Fantastic episode if you haven't checked it out. I'm really excited to hang out, see him in person, go to his wedding. It's going to be awesome. I'll remind you as always that my guest and I are not medical professionals. Do not take any medical action based off what you hear on this podcast without first consulting your doctor. And in this podcast, I feel like that's particularly pertinent because we talk about a lot of really specific medications and specific things that Heather has done for her health, which is super, super helpful. I feel like getting to hear those specifics for anyone else dealing with anything similar is so helpful. But please keep in mind that you know this is one person's journey, one person's story, these things worked for Heather, does not mean it will work for everyone, and it definitely does not mean that you should try any of these things before talking to your doctor. So absolutely, check with your doctor before doing anything based off what you hear on this podcast. And with that, we'll jump into our fantastic episode with Heather about her laundry list of diagnoses. Heather, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. I'm so happy to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm very excited to chat. We've been following each other on TikTok for, I think, at least a year. You're someone at who's least, been if not more. Yeah, yeah <laughs> you're someone who's been on my list of people to interview for a long time, and I'm really excited that it's finally happening today.
1: Yeah, so am I. Um, I've been following your podcast and uh, connecting with your audience, and I'm glad that I get to be a part of it today.
0: Yeah, me too. Oh, that's awesome. So let's get to know you a little bit, Heather. Why don't you tell us about yourself?
1: My name's Heather. I was born and raised in um, Alberta, Canada, up north, and I am married and I have one seven-year-old uh, child. I worked in occupational health and safety for about a decade before I came ill. And right now, because I haven't been able to work, that I'm on long-term disability. I am uh, just focusing on education and advocacy for individuals in the autoimmune disease world.
0: Yeah, awesome. I've seen some of your advocacy online and I I have to share that you um you shared this with me a couple of days ago that you had been working on a children's book about um autoimmune diseases and I just want to bring it up right away cuz I, I read it and I loved it. It's so adorable. Can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, sure. Um so in 2000 uh in 2017 I went into a health crisis and that's when I was uh had to stop working and I got very sick and was bedbound for um, a couple of years. And for anyone that has ever been in chronic pain or dealt with being bedbound and sick, uh, depression often follows. And um, one of the ways that I helped to battle the depression was to find a project that I could work on that kind of distracted me from the pain. Um And that project for me was writing this children's book. Um, The book title is called I'm the Biggest Helper with Mama's Autoimmune Disease. And it's based off of real lived experience between myself as a chronically ill mom and uh, my son. And uh, the story... Um, it's a children's picture book. So aimed at children's, you know, ages four to eight, but to be honest, it's great for adults that are wanting to learn more about autoimmune diseases as well. Um, it's the first half of the book kind of focuses on educating children in really simple and easy to learn terms of what an invisible illness is and how it can cause what we call ouchies on the inside, um, where Childs can't see it, but it's there. So, you know, children are pretty black and white. If you have a scrape on the knee or cut yourself or a bite or a sting, you can see it and it hurts. But when you have a parent with an autoimmune disease or chronic illness or chronic pain, you can't always see that ouchie. And so it goes on to teach kids just about how some illnesses are invisible in the body. And then the second half of the book focuses on um giving examples of how a young child can help out a parent or grandparent or a neighbor that might be dealing with a chronic illness and it's simple things that children already know how to do um some examples from the book are um i can help my mom by putting on my own jacket and my own boots when getting ready to go outside or carrying the groceries out to the car from the grocery store, you know, just like simple things that kids can already do. And one of my favorite pages in the book is at the very end when um, it goes on to give examples. If a parent is ill in bed, but still wants to connect with their child, they can do things like reading or singing or writing uh, in bed together. Um, So yeah, it's just, it's a really sweet book. And I I wrote it for my family because my son was having a hard time understanding why I was sick. He was four years old at the time that I wrote it. I I self-published the book. So I went and, you know, I I wrote it and I had a friend who was an editor and uh, I found an illustrator and a manufacturer. And I did all of that while sitting in bed sick at home. Mm Um, which for me was a really great accomplishment. And as I started sharing this book with friends and family, and then now a wider audience, I've gotten so much feedback saying that it helped other families. And that just just warms my heart up so much. I'm just so happy.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's two things about this that really resonate for me. One is the interpersonal relationships of being chronically ill are very difficult sometimes. You know, what do you need when... You are constantly sick and other family members see you sick all the time. It can be really hard on the family members as well. But to mm-hmm. to have that be between a parent and a child is a really, you know, unique relationship mm-hmm. where the parent, you know, is expected to be the one taking care of the child. But with a mm-hmm. chronic illness, sometimes, you know, we need kids to take care of us. Um, I don't yeah. have kids. But, um, yeah. but yeah, I mean, that's something that uh, really struck me about the book is sort of framing this as a way for kids to learn about how they can support their parents with a chronic illness. I thought that was really special. Um, And then also like, I am the biggest fan in the world of having a project get you through chronic illness. You know, that's what I'm all about. That's how this podcast started was I was home from work, unable to do much and really wanting to connect with other people with chronic illnesses and have something to do that I cared about. And this is, you know, this is what I created. And for me, and I think it's probably similar for you, when you look back on those bed-bound years, having had something positive come out of it that you made is, you know, really helps to balance out that feeling of lost time of, you know, I spent years on the couch and sometimes I think about that and I'm horrified about, you know, like I spent most of my 30s in bed and that's horrifying. But if I look at it from the point of view of like, I went through something really awful and I forced myself to have something good come out of it it really shapes the narrative of of the self talk about your own chronic illness
1: absolutely i definitely think that you and i um connect on that level um we both found a project that we were able to use to help us get through our own pain but also find purpose in that pain and be able to give back to the chronic illness community um yeah, I think, I think that we both have some really, really special projects and we know that it's helping the chronic illness world. It's just great.
0: Yeah, well, I'm really excited to hear more about your story. I know a yeah. little bit about it, but, uh, but let's dive into it. So, Heather, sure. what is your major pain?
1: I have to say that I have a bit of a laundry list when it comes to major pain, or <laughs> should I say a laundry list of diagnoses and with each of those comes pain. Um, so, my... My first two diagnoses were Sjogren's disease and vasculitis Mm. um, at the age of 26. And then uh, fast forward a couple of years, I was diagnosed with SLE lupus and um, a headache condition called New Daily Persistent Headache Disorder. And um, as a result from my lupus and Sjogren's, I also have gut dysmobility or gut mobility issues. Um, which have, which has created SIBO, which is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Um, so those are like, that's me in a nutshell when it comes to diagnoses. Now, what is my biggest pain out of all of those? Um, it, it, to me, it depends on the day. Um, I definitely deal with a dynamic disability. So some days I might be up functioning able to spend time with my family and kids and there's other days where I am bed down for a couple of days or a week at a time um the things that I'm struggling with most right now are just getting used to my baseline with my Sjogren's and my lupus um I went into a health cur- so if I go back and do a bit of a timeline for anybody that's curious. So I first got sick at the age of 20, um, right when I met my boyfriend, who is now my husband. And it's a bit of a funny story because about six months into us dating, um, Mark, my husband's uh, my boyfriend at the time, sat me down and he's like, Heather, we need to talk. And I'm like, Oh, great. Like, you know, all my, my mind starts racing, like nothing good ever comes out of the, we need to talk conversation. <laughs> right. So we sit down at the kitchen table and he looks me in the eyes and he says, Heather, I need to tell you something. You are sick and you need to go to a doctor. Wow. And I was like, I was caught off guard and confused. Um, And I said, what do you mean? And he's like, you are in pain every single day. You get sick every time you eat. You can barely go to work. He's like, you like that's not normal. Mm. You need to go to a doctor. And so that was like the first time in my life that I realized that I was in chronic pain only because somebody else pointed it out to me. And for anybody that has had um that has had an autoimmune disease, a, a lot of them. They they come on very slowly, right? And, and it kind of builds over time and you get used to the pain. And then it's okay. only until somebody else realizes it and tells you that maybe, maybe you come to that self-realization. So age 20 was the first time that I realized I was sick. And so with his help, we started going to doctors and trying to figure out what was going on and lots of tests. And um, you know, Western medicine did not help me at that time. I turned to Eastern medicines and had some some improvement, but not enough. Um, Fast forward eight years. So at the age of 28 is when I finally got a doctor to recognize my symptoms and referred me to a rheumatologist who, as soon as she looked at me and my chart and my blood work, she says, you have Sjogren's and you have vasculitis. Like I don't even need to do further tests. Wow. So Eight years. It took me eight years to get those first two diagnoses.
0: What What did you do to get this doctor to listen to you? What was the difference with this doctor?
1: Okay, so um, with vascular, if you if you're not aware of what a vasculitis is, my vasculitis is um, a, a big rash, really really painful rash that comes on um, and lasts for about three to seven days for me. And um, I would take pictures of the rash and I would bring them into doctors and they'd say, it just looks like a heat rash. It just looks like a heat rash. Um, And it started really small on the tops of my feet. And then every time that I would have a flare up, it would start growing up my legs to the point where the last major flare up that I had was mid-thigh. Uh, From my ankles all the way up to mid-thigh, like completely red. So painful. I couldn't walk. I would be bawling my eyes out, sitting in ice bath. It was horrible, horrible experience. So only once I actually started taking those pictures to the doctor, along Mm. with my long list of symptoms, did the doctor put two and two together and say, hey, this is probably something rheumatic. I'm going to send you to a rheumatologist.
0: It's such a it feels like such a no brainer to take pictures or to take video when you have intermittent symptoms, but Mm -hmm. it took me forever to figure that out. Like that's so, so important. Mm -hmm. Um, If you are just starting out on your diagnostic journey, when when you're in the midst of it, make some proof to take to the doctors because they will not listen to you unless they can see it oftentimes.
1: It's so true. Like for me, it was just going in and complaining of all of these things that were going on. And because I wasn't always showing symptoms, I was told, well, it's not really that bad or, oh, maybe it's just, you know, like a mental health thing or maybe we'll just try this medication. But I don't think it's this, you know. So it was only when I had like hard concrete proof of like, hey, this growing rash is going up my legs. What's going to happen when it gets to my organs? Did Mm. the doctor say, oh, yeah, like this could get serious really fast. We need to look into it.
0: How did you feel at 28 after eight years of, you know, banging your head against the wall and not having anyone listen to you? to finally not only get someone to pay attention but to then find out that you have two diseases at the same time what was mm-hmm. that what was that feeling
1: um i mean i don't think i've ever felt validation as like deep as i did in that moment like mm-hmm. to to finally be able to say to myself hey i'm not crazy for feeling all of these all of this pain all of these symptoms somebody is finally seeing me and i was so thankful for that um, I mean, I'm not thankful that it ended up being these autoimmune diseases that I'm going to have to now manage for the rest of my life, but I'd rather have answers and an opportunity at treatment rather than trying to mask symptoms in unhealthy ways or just never having answers.
0: Totally. Tell us about Sjogren's. We, we've covered this once on the show before, but it was a while back. Um, so yeah. what, what is Sjogren's syndrome?
1: So, yeah, so um, Sjogrens, spelt S-J-O-G-R-E-N-S, um, is pronounced Sjogrens. It's a, hard, it's a hard pronunciation. Most people don't even attempt it because of the way that it is spelt. Uh, uh, the spelling comes from the uh, the person who discovered it, Henrik Sjogren, who was an optometrist um, over in Sweden um, back in the early 1900s. Um, it is in the rheumatic disease family. So if you know what rheumatoid arthritis is, lupus, scleroderma, mixed connective tissue disease, it is in the same family as all of those. Um, it's often coined as a sister disease to SLE lupus because there's so much overlap in Mm. symptoms. Um, as we know with rheumatoid, Arthritis and scleroderma and lupus and Sjogren's, they each have different presentations of how they attack the body, even in a systemic nature. And with Sjogren's, it can cause excessive dryness. Um, And so this means that you can suffer from extremely dry eyes, you can suffer from dry nose, dry mouth for females, dry vaginal cavity. Um, And I'm not just talking like you know, you have a little bit of a dry mouth and you take some water and you're fine, like this is debilitating, can't chew your food, biting on your cheek because there's not enough saliva in your mouth, choking on your food is a huge hazard for Sjogren's patients Um, with dry eyes. um if you've ever been in like a sandstorm or a windstorm and had a foreign like a foreign piece of dirt or dust or sand get stuck in your eye, that's often what it feels like to live with Sjogren's day in and day out.
0: Wow. Um great description. It, wow.
1: Yeah. It's if you've ever dealt with with that, that's very, very much like living with Sjogren's. And um unfortunately, when it comes to prescription medication, there isn't a whole lot of options out there there's a few things but as we know with medications um, there's always side effects and not every medication works for every person so um, it takes it takes Sjogren's patients from my experience a lot of time to figure out what works for them when it comes to medications and over-the-counter products that's Sjogren's in a nutshell.
0: So how did that go for you once you get your diagnosis Um, And you start going through the process of trying different medications. Mm -hmm. Uh, Did you find anything that worked for you? And how did you learn to incorporate both of these first two uh, diagnoses into your life?
1: I was given naproxen and hydroxychloroquine or Plaquenil as first line treatment for the Sjogren's. And I had an allergic reaction to both of those medications the next medication that was recommended to me was Imuran, and I didn't feel comfortable going on that at such a young age. Um, So I opted to not take medication after those two allergic reactions, and I just targeted living a healthier lifestyle. So at the time, I was intermittently still drinking on the weekends, sometimes had a cigarette or two, uh, didn't prioritize my sleep and was eating a pretty standard North American diet, which is not very healthy. Um, so I, I took all of that stuff and sent it out the window and really focused on um, eating a healthier diet and um, getting a good night's sleep and getting back into exercising as much as my body would allow me to and um, finding kind of more supportive friendships and less toxic relationships and a lot of that really helped. Um, I was able to get it into. I'm not going to say I was in full remission, but I was at a point where I could still work full time, and I was able to get pregnant and have my son. And I, we, our family, was still able to go on our you know yearly vacations, and I was I was able to live a, a rel- relatively normal life with just those lifestyle changes.
0: Interesting. Yeah. So when you were 20, and your then boyfriend, now husband said you need to go to the doctor. Um, mm-hmm. The symptoms you were experiencing then, like difficulty after eating, and um, mm-hmm. a lot of those symptoms that you've mentioned sounds like they might be coming in future diagnoses, um, and yeah, not necessarily yeah. in the ones that we just dis- talked about. Yeah. So, for vasculitis and Sjogren's, yeah. what were the signs of those that you had been experiencing? I mean, obviously, rash and, and yeah. dry eyes. Yeah. Um, are those like the main things that that you had been experiencing before those that diagnosis for those um, specific yep. diagnoses?
1: Yep. And then I was also dealing with some um, joint pain quite quite severely in my shoulders and my hips. Mm. And um, and I have been pretty active my entire life. And in my 20s, I was still refereeing hockey a couple times a week, and it was pretty high intensity. And I just noticed that my muscles were not recovering in the way that They were able to when I was younger. So between the joint pain, the muscle pain, the dryness symptoms, I had sores on the inside of my mouth, which is very uh, common with Sjogren's and lupus patients, Uh, the rashes on my legs. Those are kind of all of the things that led me down the road to getting into a rheumatologist for those first
0: diagnoses. I'm shocked that no one thought to try a rheumatologist before that. Did you have that moment of anger when you finally got to the right doctor?
1: Yeah, yes. Um, I mean, at this time, like when I would, I'm looking back to like, I think it was like 2006 when, when I first started at, at age 20 it was about 2006 when I started looking for answers. And in my city, it was next to impossible to find a family doctor at the time. Hmm. So I was really just going to like walk in clinics, never seeing the same doctor and like, for years, because you just could not find a family doctor. And so you can't build a relationship or or talk about symptoms time over time if you're never seeing the same doctor. Wow, right? So a lot of my frustrations just came with like this overburdened medical system that wasn't able to serve me in the ways that I needed it at the time.
0: Yeah. And also when you have a laundry list of future diagnoses coming,
1: yeah. when
0: you start to talk about all those symptoms, they don't all line up with one thing because there are yeah. multiple things happening. Yeah. And that yeah. can be a huge barrier to getting a diagnosis. Because in my experience, you jump straight to the eyes glazed over, not paying attention, because this person is obviously a hypochondriac with, you know, yeah. who's obviously afraid of their own body and doesn't really know how to exist in their own body. Like doctors yeah. jump to that all the time. Yeah. When in fact, the only person in the entire universe who is an expert on living in your body is you.
1: Yep, I agree.
0: Yeah, very frustrating. So, okay, so you get these diagnoses, these first two diagnoses, uh, mm-hmm. Sjogren's vasculitis, um, yep. and the, the medications you mentioned trying, were those all for Sjogren's?
1: Those for, were both for Sjogren's, okay. and then with those lifestyle changes, I didn't have another severe vasculitis flare-up. Um, we were teasing the idea of going on to prednisone, so prednisone is kind of the, the first line medication that they give for vasculitis mm. and um, but my rheumatologist was hesitant and so I didn't have another huge flare-up with vasculitis that required medication after making those like pretty drastic lifestyle changes
0: Wow yeah that's interesting and prednisone we've talked about that for me as well, but that's a heavy medication to be on it, it has is. a lot of very bad side effects yeah um, and it's one of those things where if your body really needs it then yes do it but if there's another mm-hmm. way you know, explore the other way. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And those lifestyle changes are across the board, good things to do for anyone.
1: Absolutely. I was just, I was still 20 and like being stupid, you know, like, oh yeah, we'll be we all need to and drinking <laughs> and, you know, you have the odd cigarette or, you know, like you're still kind of in those party party years. And, you know, my body just said, no, you need to, you need to figure it out and start Start treating yourself right.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, Sjogren's, you said, is a uh, rheumatic disease. Uh, It's also an autoimmune disease, right?
1: It is, correct, yeah.
0: Yeah, and is vasculitis also an autoimmune disease?
1: It is. uh, It's a cardiovascular slash autoimmune disease.
0: Okay, so autoimmune means your body's attacking itself. So, you have two autoimmune diseases so far. I know there's more common. (laughs) So, yeah. it does make sense that if, you, if your body's attacking itself, if you start treating your body extra carefully, then mm-hmm. you might lift a little of that load off, you know? This is yeah. not, it, it's so frustrating, like, when going through the diagnostic process, which I'm still in, so I get this, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, whenever doctors tell you to, like, address your lifestyle, um, it's like, okay, all my weird neurological symptoms are not going to go away because I address my lifestyle, you know? Yes, yes. but. Um, but it can help. It really can help. And especially if something autoimmune is happening, um, your body's attacking itself. If you can't make that stop, you can at least also stop attacking your body. You know, if your body's attacking itself and then you are also externally attacking it, if you have a certain amount of spoons to get through the day, you're taking a couple of them out just from attacking yourself. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, I really pushed back against making those lifestyle changes for a long time. Um, And then I got really into it and it's, and now I feel kind of trapped inside of them. (laughs) Like I can't, I, now when I cheat. because
1: if you deviate. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I get so sick and that's how I know that I'm on the right track. But um, it's, it's, and it sucks, you know, it sucks to have to make those choices to, to have to let go of some elements of, you know, being young and free to take on this like health regimen that. That feels a little unfair, but I, but it is worth it. You know, I really think yes. it's worth it.
1: It is. Yeah, I agree. Um, it would be nice to have a vice every once in a while because it right. feels like everybody else in the world does. Yes. But, um, but when I look back and see, you know, some of the gains that I've had because of healthier living, you know, and the moments that I've been able to spend with my family um, because of those, like it's worth it in the end. Right. Yeah. And, And like you said, like lifestyle changes aren't going to, um, they aren't going to cure you of everything that's going on in your body. But the way that I kind of view it is, um, is your immune system is kind of like a fire. And if you don't have healthier lifestyle choices, it's like a fire going into like a dry forest. And like, it's just going to go up in flames and you're going to be miserable. And you're going to like, it's going to go, it's going to die faster. And if you're doing like healthy lifestyle choices, says that to me that's like a damp forest fire like it's not pouring rain on the forest fire but it's enough to like slow it down so that you can catch your breath and figure out where you can focus your energy on and so um you know if if anybody is out there like struggling with their just like so much pain lifestyle like simple lifestyle choices can help to improve it enough so that you can kind of like catch your breath and try and figure out where you can make the next change, and it it might be like the smallest thing, like drinking lemon water in the morning instead of a coffee, mm. like and like and maybe only once a week, right? Like you can you can start small, but if if you start even just a little bit, I I believe that it can help improve your life a little bit.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's tough to be young and to go out and. Not be able to drink when everyone around you is drinking, um, yeah. yeah, and that that's a complication, you know um, but for a lot of us, the alternative is not going out, you know, because if you have that drink, sometimes your body will rebel against you, um, so yes. and then you're stuck on the couch, so <laughs> it's yeah. all you know with with chronic illness, you often have to let go of what you want. And just go with Mm -hmm. the thing that is the best version of what your options are. And I mean, that's compromise. That's life. That's a good skill to have. And I feel like the more I've sort of veered into the direction of like finding my best way through instead of making sure that everything is what I want, I feel like I've been kind of happier because I was living in a very, in a more selfish way. Um, So like having gratitude for what you can do instead of fighting against uh, yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of fighting against what you can't. Yeah. I think that that's really, really helpful mindset, but it's also all of this is a process that takes years to, to get to as you're living with chronic illness.
1: Yes. Yeah. I think that um, anybody that's been dealing with chronic illness, chronic pain, autoimmune disease, fibro um, there's always resistance, right? You want to resist because you want this, you know, lifestyle that maybe your friends are, are living right now, but the sooner that you kind of like give in and learn to grieve certain parts of yourself that aren't there anymore or you might not get back, um, grieving is the gateway to healing um, some of those emotional aspects of living with chronic pain.
0: Yeah, that's very true. So what's next for you in your story?
1: <laughs> um, yeah, so diagnosed in uh, when I was 28 with those two autoimmune diseases and then. Um, fast forward a couple of years and my husband and I, um, got pregnant and had my son. Um, my pregnancy was amazing. It happened. I've heard this from a lot of other, um, females that have gone pregnant where their autoimmune disease kind of like just like dissipates and goes away. Mm. So for nine months I was like pain free and it was so marvelous. It was so wonderful. Um, but post birth. Um, it came back and hit me hard. Um, my autoimmune disease, like my Sjogren's was really, really bad. I, I was suffering from really bad blepharitis, which is inflammation of the eyelids. Um, that just caused like issues, even like opening my eyes to sunlight. Um, but, but we managed through it and, uh, and again, like got back to work, got back to, you know, day-to-day life with a young child. Um, was still able to go on our family vacation together, um, back to a seemingly normal life. Um, and then in 2017, which is a couple of years ago, uh, my husband and I wanted to expand our family again by having another child. And so um I got pregnant and unfortunately had a miscarriage, and that miscarriage. Physically in my body caused my autoimmune disease to go haywire. Mm. And then six, six weeks after that miscarriage, I had another trauma that hit me really hard. And, um, I suffered from really bad depression and PTSD because of that. And it took me about a full year to recover, uh, mentally and emotionally from those two back-to-back traumas. Wow. Um, I took some time off of work. I was working part-time during that year. And then at the end of 2018, so about a a year later, I got back to working full-time and I started to notice that things inside my body were not right. Like there was definitely something going on. And so I called my rheumatologist and asked her if I could do some blood work and come in and see her. Um, like on an like urgent appointment and she was able to accommodate and so I did my blood work and I went in and I um I was talking to her about like my my pains and and how it was impacting me um and she looked at my blood work and she said yeah I had suspicions of this but I'm going to be giving you a diagnosis of S. elite lupus um and so I was diagnosed with lupus in 2018.
0: Wow um I'm so sorry to hear about your miscarriage um yeah and it's amazing how trauma can impact everything else about our bodies you know Mm -hmm. yeah and that's also so interesting that during the time when you were first pregnant that your um your body was sort of uh in remission and that must be a really (laughs) conflicting feeling to be like oh wow this is what it feels like to to be out of pain
1: Yeah, I have to be honest, I ate a lot of gluten during my pregnancy because I typically can't eat gluten. It just, it wrecks my body. But during my pregnancy, I was able to indulge and it was really beautiful. (laughs) It was really wonderful. Um, But yeah, I was reading up on this because I was like, man, this is so, I'm so curious, like why, why does that happen? And I read something that said that um, when a woman becomes pregnant, the body, the body um like the immune system kind of like dampens itself or like uh lowers itself and te- tries to teach it that the baby is not a foreign object so it doesn't so it doesn't attack the baby so it kind of just goes like okay hands off we're not gonna like really attack anything unless we like really know that it's a dangerous pathogen um so that the body doesn't doesn't attack the baby because the baby is kind of like a foreign object in there wow. right so yeah it's interesting
0: yeah I- Researchers out there, look into this. How can we?
1: <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> how can we yeah. figure
0: out what's happening so that we can apply it the rest of the time? Is there frustration of knowing, hey, my body can do this. My body can def- stop attacking me and <laughs> and just chooses not to.
1: Po- Post pregnancy, I definitely had some of those uh, pain points. I was like, man, like why can't I just like extend this, you know, for like another year or two? It'd be so wonderful, but you know. <laughs> that's not how it goes (laughs) yeah
0: so okay this is something we've never covered on the show before which is lupus and you said sle lupus right yes so okay tell us about lupus uh
1: okay so uh lupus again is in the rheumatic disease family the same as sjogren's um rheumatoid arthritis or mixed connective tissue disease um it's its presentation is that it typically attacks the organs. And so it can be quite serious, quite fast, if not caught early. Um, there are multiple different types of lupus. And so SLE lupus is systemic lupus, meaning it can attack any connective tissue in the body. Um, there is also uh lupus nephritis, which is a lupus that specifically targets the kidneys. And for anybody that knows, or is a fan of Selena Gomez. That's the type of lupus that she has.
0: Mm.
1: Um, and then there can also be neonatal lupus. So when you have a baby, it can be born with lupus antibodies um, that typically clear up from what I remember. Um, but it's been a while since I did any reading up on that. So mm. I have systemic lupus, which means that it can attack any connective tissue in the body. Um, that includes muscle muscle, those joints, tendons, organs, um, pretty much anything inside of the body it could be at risk of being attacked by your immune system.
0: And what happens when when a particular organ is attacked?
1: Uh, so uh, uh, scientifically, I don't know that I'm the expert to be able sure. to, um, to answer that, but I um, there's blood work that your rheumatologist will be um, like for my rheumatologist uh, monitors my blood work to see the uh, proteins in my kidneys and my liver, because those were the two that were most at risk with mine. Um, Now, I I very luckily have not had Enough disease progression with my lupus to really know what it looks like when you start having major liver damage or major kidney damage with lupus. I hope that that doesn't happen for a very long time.
0: So you're, you're monitoring? Uh, we
1: are monitoring. Yeah. yeah. So I go for blood work every three months right now. And, yeah. and if there's any concerns on my blood work, then my rheumatologist will call me and bring me in to discuss those results.
0: And lupus is the disease with the uh, often has the butterfly rash on the face, right?
1: Correct. Yes. So, yeah. um, so I do, I do, uh, we're on a podcast so you can't really see, but <laughs> I, I do have, yeah, it's called the butterfly rash. So on the bridge of your nose and then also on your cheeks can uh, become really red. And, um, it is called the butterfly lash because it looks like a butterfly and the butterfly is a symbol that, um, that individuals with lupus often use to symbolize, um, their disease. You see it often in tattoos or other social media avatars, that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah. And my understanding that lupus is really hard to diagnose um, and it can sometimes be a diagnosis of exclusion. Is that true?
1: Yes, that is true. Um, if anybody has ever watched house, that's how that I know these things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you'll know that his, you know, his coined phrase was it's not lupus. And the reason for that is because, It can imitate just about any other disease Mm. that we know of. Um, It's also um, commonly known uh, as the great imitator. So it can imitate just about any disease. And yes, typically your doctors or your specialists, team of specialists, will try and rule out other other suspicions uh, before ever giving a lupus diagnosis. And so for me, when I was first diagnosed with lupus, I had a positive blood antibody for um, SSB um, and that, that antibody can be positive for both Sjogren's patients and lupus patients. So my rheumatologist knew that lupus could be a possibility for me because I had that positive blood antitype, but the rest of my blood work didn't really indicate positive at that time. So, fast forward, you know, another eight or nine years uh, up to 2018, and um, the change in my blood work and the continued positive with that SSB antibody was, was what helped to give me that, uh, that lupus diagnosis.
0: Wow. So, you're 20 years old when you first start going to the doctor, you're 28 when you get your first diagnosis, and then how yeah. old were you with the lupus diagnosis?
1: Uh, I think I was 32. Okay. By that time, and I'm 36 now.
0: Oh wow! Okay. Like
1: around yeah, so like, yeah, 2018 was when I got my lupus diagnosis. So that so was not about long ago, five years ago. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So what what changed for you in your life after getting this diagnosis?
1: So at the time, like when I went back to the doctor, to my rheumatologist in 2018 and was like, hey, things are off in my body. I need to do blood work. We need to talk about it. And she, uh, when she gave me that diagnosis, I started having difficulty doing really simple everyday things. And within about six weeks, I became bedbound from that appointment with her to when I, you know, had to stop working and go on to wow. long term disability. Um, I had difficulty getting up out of bed. I had difficulty um, pulling the covers off of my body just to like roll out of bed. I had difficulty walking down the hallway, uh, getting to the toilet, getting up off the toilet. Um, I remember uh, having difficulty lifting a fork to my mouth, like for a whole meal, like I would have to take breaks during my meals because I couldn't lift my fork to my mouth. Chewing. Chewing food was difficulty for me, was difficult for me. So I had to change my diet to like a soft food diet. Um, I had my my Sjogren's was also pretty bad at the time. So dealing with some major eye issues and dry mouth, and I live in what feels like the driest city in the world, Calgary. So um just the dryness symptoms on top of the lupus and I describe it as it felt like somebody had just poured concrete over all of my limbs and I just could not move. Um, Doing the slightest amount of movement just felt like I was running miles.
0: Yeah. Just like insane bone weary exhaustion. Yeah. Yeah. And a
1: lot of, and a lot of muscle pain like all over my body and like I couldn't, you can't sleep because of the pain. And then when you don't get good sleep, the symptoms get worse. And it was just like a horrible cycle. Um, And then my inflammation was continuing to grow during that time, I was still doing blood work. And um, when my rheumatologist gave me that lupus diagnosis, that is when we decided to start Imuran, um, which is a a medication um, given to help target uh, the immune system in the body it's a psychotoxin. So, uh, a chemotherapy drug. Mm. Um, and the unfortunate thing about starting a lot of the medications for these rheumatic diseases is that you have to start the medication and then wait several months to see if the medication starts working. Yeah. So I started that medication in about November of 2018 by beginning of January, I was bedridden and could barely function. Um, I had started the medication, but had not been seeing any positive um, impacts. And so my rheumatologist then gave me um, Prednisone. And so that's when I started Prednisone in January of 2019. Mm. And uh, Prednisone helped, but it was not an easy medication to be on. Yeah. Like, there's so, I don't even, I feel like I'm still traumatized just like even thinking about that time because. Um, it did help me. Like I was able to get out of bed. I was still in a lot of pain, but I was able to get out of bed, but I just, in this, you can't, you, you can't sleep on the medication. It just makes you like, so wired that I'm like, you're up for like hours in the middle of the night, like pacing the house. Cause you just have so much energy and there's just no way of like settling down. So it was kind of just like trading in one, undesirable lifestyle for another desirable lifestyle um the plan was to only be on prednisone for about two weeks to hopefully see if the imuran would start working um but come that two-week time period when i had started tapering off um the imuran wasn't working and as soon as i started tapering off prednisone my symptoms started coming back really really full force so um, that's when we decided to introduce methotrexate into the medication regime. Which again, met- methotrexate is uh, a chemotherapy drug given in small doses for people with rheumatic diseases. Mm-hmm. Very common for people with um, Sjogren's and uh, rheumatoid arthritis to also be on that medication. And same thing, it's you start the medication and then you have to wait four to six months to see if it starts working. So. Same thing. I had to stay on prednisone during that whole four month period because I couldn't get off of it. I was just too sick. Um, Come uh, summertime, I think of 2019, I again started to taper off the prednisone and I noticed that the methotrexate was helping a little bit, but not enough that I could get off the prednisone completely. So I stayed on the amuran, the mexotrethate and the prednisone for a whole other year because it was the only thing that I could do. Wow! Now it's important to note that prednisone is an amazing and life-saving medication um, and is really good for use in emergency situations, but it is not safe to be on long-term. It can cause um, osteoporosis, weight gain that can cause things like diabetes and cardiovascular disease um, and so I ended up being on prednisone for two and a half years before I finally found a medication that helped me Um, and that medication is a medication called Benlista and Benlista is uh, the newest medication that has been developed and approved by the FDA for lupus, Um, it was was approved by Health Canada about probably a year before I started taking it, and I was one of the first people in my city to start taking it. Um, And that medication, Lista, was the medication that absolutely changed my life. Within, within six weeks of taking the Benlista, I was able to start tapering off of my prednisone uh, and eventually was able to get off of it completely and have not been back on it since. Um, and it helped me with getting my life back from, I'm going to say 80 to 90% living in bed to being able to function maybe at like 50% of what my pre-healthier body was able to. So I am able to wake up and get my kid ready for school and take him to school in the morning. I am able to um, take him to swim class once a week. I am able to cook supper from time to time with my family and spend time with them. Um, All things that I couldn't do previously when I was sick in bed.
0: Yeah, and it's amazing how, you know, when you get down to a lifestyle where you're barely functioning, getting back up to 50% can feel, you can feel so much gratitude for that.
1: Amazing. Yeah. Like I have so much gratitude for, I mean, all of the medications that I have been on throughout the journey that have helped, but Lista, I have to say is probably my favorite because yeah. it, it gave me the best gains and the best quality
0: back. And that's incredible that it's a new medication. I mean, that's mm-hmm. really goes to show you, if if you're really struggling, keep fighting, keep looking because we are always making progress as a yes. medical society and as a scientific society and you never know what is around the corner. Yes. When did, uh, I, I know there's a couple more diagnoses in here. I remember SIBO was one of them. Yeah. When did that come into the picture?
1: Uh, okay. So, now we're up to, I feel like I should be drawing out a timeline for your, <laughs> viewer, for your listeners. <laughs> Uh, so come, uh, between 20 and 2020, well, the last two years, so 2020 to now. Yeah. Um, I started having, so my headache condition, new daily persistent headache condition is the thing that came kind of next in my timeline. And, um, I got referred to a neurologist because my headaches just were like unrelenting, everyday pain. I was back to spending a lot of time down my basement, quiet room, earplugs in. Um, went through kind of a diagnostic process with the neurologist and a whole bunch of treatments, and they gave me a diagnosis of new daily persistent headache disorder, which is exactly like it sounds. You wake up with a headache every single day and it never goes away. And so For people that have this diagnosis, it could be either a migraine headache or a tension headache or a mix between the two. And so what we found out for me was that mine was 100% tension headache and due to just involvement with my lupus and Sjogren's attacking the muscles in my upper body and upper back. And so that came up and just caused a whole bunch of tension in my upper body, which then led to severe and debilitating headaches. Wow. Um, I am really lucky that I am working with a really great team to manage those headaches, and the treatment is um a bit extensive, but um I'm happy to be on it now. Uh I get Botox every three months to help with my headaches, and um I'm on a medication called Tizanidine, which is a muscle relaxer that helps with my lupus and children's muscle involvement. And I have gone in for, um, I call them nerve blocks, and it's with a medication called buvivacaine, which is the freezing uh, medication that you go, like when you go to the dentist and they freeze your teeth or freeze your nerves to get dental work done, Uh, it's that medication, but they give it to you in needles throughout uh, different points in your head to freeze your head um so that and then also the same medication in a needle that goes up up your nose uh to freeze like in and around and behind your eyeballs is called an spg block um but again it, all of that treatment has helped me to get back to a place where i can function and spend time with my family and work on some advocacy and education with our communities so.
0: where are the botox injections
1: uh, So. So they're all over. So the the nerve block and the Botox injections are just points, kind of all over your head. So there's there's two across each of the eyebrows, and then a couple across your front hairline, a couple across your back hairline, and then a couple on the top of your head and behind
0: your ears. Okay, and then how often? kind Kind of all over the place. How often do you have to go in for these injections?
1: So Botox is every three months and then nerve blocks can be done once a week. And for, I'd say about six months, I was getting them once a week. And as the Botox and Tizanadine started working better with my body, I now almost don't need them at all. I go in for the needle that goes up my nose probably once every three months as well. And only if I kind of have like an emergency day or I push myself too hard and it results in a flare up, do I need to go in for any additional needles?
0: Wow. So it's kind of an as needed thing. And as, it sounds yeah, like as, it, as needed. As, yeah. as you started treating it, it's just started to that that tension has started to release a little bit. Yes. Um, wow. I'm glad to hear that. That sounds like such a nightmare
1: it was, I mean, going through the diagnostic process and trying new medications and being poked with a ton of needles, like none of it's fun. And at the time you're like, you're angry and you're frustrated and you're exhausted. But like now that I'm on the other side and I like, again, have had some relief. I'm like, man, it was so worth going through all of that to find something that worked.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. I can't imagine having to like go back and be in that like everyday relentless pain. Like I'm glad that I found answers and I'm glad that I pushed through. I know how exhausting it is. Oh God, I know. Um, But for anybody else that is suffering out there right now and like really struggling, like don't give up. Um, We, we understand how difficult it is. We understand how exhausting it is, but we have faith that, um, that you will find something that will help you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. And you never know when it's coming and you are living proof that, you know, things can continue to come up, but you can continue to push through. Um, yes. Cause you've, I mean, you've been through so many of these things at this point. We're not even to the end yet.
1: Yes. We're almost there. We're
0: almost <laughs> at the end. Uh,
1: yeah. So SIBO, it, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, again, is exactly like it sounds. It's a bacterial overgrowth in your small intestine. Um, I, so I've suffered with, GI issues for my, for myself, it's chronic constipation since the age of 20. Like when I first got sick way at the beginning, one of my symptoms was chronic constipation and feeling nausea every time I ate and bloatedness. Um, and just like really my GI track has never been happy since my twenties. Fast forward 14 years. Um, actually when I was around 22, I think my one of the walking doctors gave me a diagnosis of IBS and didn't give me any treatment options and just said, figure like the diet for IBS is different for every person. So you're just going to have to figure it out. <laughs> and I, I walked away from that meeting, like so angry. I don't even want to talk about it. I'm still yeah. angry today. Yeah. Cause I, I just think IBS is a BS diagnosis. Like the doctor doesn't want to like figure it out with you. Mm -hmm. So anyways, get back to where I am now. Um, I came across um, somebody on social talking about all of these GI symptoms that I was experiencing and how they were diagnosed with IBS, but it wasn't actually IBS. It ended up being SIBO. And that was the first time that I'd ever heard the term. And so I was like, what is this? So I went to Google and I started doing some research and reading other patient stories and reading other naturopathic doctors. And I was like, I am sure that I have this. I like I I, hands down 100%. I'm sure that I have this. I diagnosed myself there on the spot.
0: <laughs> and
1: so I went to my family doctor and I asked if I could be tested for it. And of course she's like, I've never even heard of this. I don't know what it is. I'll put in an referral to a gastroenterologist. And so we got back that the wait time for a gastroenterologist was 12 to 24 months. And I was like, you have got to be kidding me. I was like, I can't wait that long. I was getting sick every time that I ate at this point. And I was just miserable. So I ended up finding a company online, a lab, a laboratory company that, um, helps you do an at-home test. So they send you the information and materials to do the testing at home. And then you send the vials back to the lab and they test and give you the results. So I ordered that and did the test and it came back like off the charts, positive for SIBO. And so um, I took that back to my family doctor and she went back and forth a couple of times with the GI, but they weren't really able to help. They kind of just didn't dismissed, dismissed it. Hmm. So I ended up finding a naturopathic doctor um, who specializes in SIBO and has helped patients with SIBO. And I brought in my test results to her and uh, she's really great. I absolutely love her. Um, Not only is she helping me to manage and treat SIBO, but she's looking at my body as a whole and looking at other areas where she can help me as well. and I'm still actively trying to treat my SIBO. I have a type of SIBO that is very, very difficult to get rid of. Um, so I'm still kind of actively working at it and um, working on treatment with her right now.
0: Wow. Do you, I mean, it sounds like SIBO is sort of a developing area of research. And it's frustrating yes. when you test positive for something like that where the doctors don't know much about it. Cause it wasn't taught yeah. when they were in med- medical school. Yes. And oftentimes doctors are very resistant to, um, incorporate things like this into their practice. Yeah. You know, like I'm currently being examined for mast cell disease or, uh, mast cell activation syndrome. Yeah. And I'm, I feel so insanely lucky to have found a doctor who not only mm-hmm. knows what it is, but has treated people for it before my new, my new allergist, yeah. um, And he's doing amazing by me, which is so great. But I, you know, my mom knows someone else who's being examined for that. And her doctors are like, her allergist says, yeah, I don't even know if this is a real thing. (laughs) It's so insane. You know, it's just like oftentimes feels like luck of the draw, whether or not you find a doctor who is up to date on current things. But the other side of that is that current things often change a lot because the research is relatively new and, you know, science the goal of science is to always strive for truth and yes. you know take a hypothesis and test it and sometimes things can seem correct for a long time before they are proved incorrect so yeah. i mean that's a, that's an aspect to this as well but um oftentimes patients like us are left to take things into our own hands and just mm-hmm. keep trying and keep pushing. Um, yep. have you are, are there any promising angles on sibo that you have found that might be helpful?
1: So for me, so there's there's two different types of sibo. So the first one is hydrogen dominant and the second one is methane dominant. And basically what happens is you have bacteria in your gut that eats up the fiber and sugars that you eat. And uh as a result, um, output hydrogen or methane. And so um for individuals with hydrogen dominant SIBO, there is an antibiotic called um rifaximin. And for methane-dominant SIBO, there is a antibiotic called neomycin. And Um, these antibiotics from what I just going clearly off of what my naturopath has taught me, um, they are not systemic antibiotics. They target just the gut microbiome and, but they're not very popular and I believe that they're pretty expensive. So if you don't have insurance, a lot of people, it's not an option for, um, so if you're dealing with SIBO, so if you think you might have SIBO, the first thing I would recommend is getting a SIBO lactulose breath test. That's the testing that you can get done either through a naturopathic doctor or through the company that I bought from. I believe it was like SIBO testing Canada or something. If you Google it, it'll come up. And uh, so doing the testing first so that you can see what type of SIBO you have. And then from there, you can figure out whether you need one or both of the antibiotics to be able to target your
0: SIBO. Are there dietary adjustments that can be helpful?
1: Yes, there are. Um, I don't have the list in front of me, but my naturopathic, the reason why I went through a naturopathic doctor rather than my GP was because my naturopathic doctor believes that food is medicine and is educated on how food can impact the body. Mm. And so she gave me a PDF printout that talked about, um, it kind of gave me like a list of what is a safe food and what is not a safe food for about six weeks for the first phase. And then you go on to the second phase where they add in a little bit more onto the safe food list and the not safe food list while you treat
0: it. Wow. So it's kind of some trial and error involved, like so many of these things. Yeah. Is that, did we hit every diagnosis? I feel like you mentioned six and I think we're we're short. one.
1: There was one more that I uh, think that I forgot to mention at the beginning and that was endometriosis.
0: Oh, wow. Okay.
1: Yes. Yeah. Uh, So, and I'm still, I'm still figuring that one out. I was only diagnosed with that about a year Ago, um, I've had debilitating, painful periods since the birth of my son. Prior to that, I was always on birth control, never really had any issues, and then had my son. And then after that, I never went back on to birth control, and my uh, monthly cycles have just been erratic and uh, painful—like crying on the floor, can't function, painful. Um, And I've been working with my uh, naturopathic doctor to manage that as well. Um, She's given me some herbal remedies that have helped a little bit, um, but it's still hit and miss right now.
0: Wow. So you've been through an insane amount health-wise. Yes. When you stop and reflect on that, how do you feel? Because is there a sense of, you know, this just, I mean, it, it is not fair. You know, you've been through so much and it isn't fair, but do you ever feel that weight?
1: Um, I do, I do get like, I think sitting here and talking about all of it for an hour when I like, I like feel a little bit overwhelmed. Like when you sit here and ask me, oh, isn't there one more diagnosis? And I go, oh yeah, there totally was. Like, it's overwhelming to think like, I can't even keep them all straight in my in my brain, but when I really sit down and like, think about it, I'm just grateful that I have been able to heal from a lot of it, Mm. you know, not physically, physically, I'm not going to be able to get back to where I always was, but emotionally and spiritually, I have been able to kind of come to peace with some of the pains, the diagnoses and the traumas that I've had in my life. And again, we talked about this a little bit at the beginning of the interview, One of the ways that I've been able to make this pain um, something into something positive was by finding a purpose through it. And for me, that was writing this children's book Mm -hmm. and being able to connect with my child as a parent with chronic pain and chronic illness. And now I'm at a place where I can take the pain that I lived and help other families around the world as well through this book. Yeah. So, it, like, it kind of it kind of makes it worth. Like, it was worth the pain if I know that I'm being if I am in a position to be able to help other people, not suffer as bad as I did.
0: Yeah, creativity is therapy, and you know, you've mentioned a, a little bit the mental health strain of going yeah. through all this and periods of deep depression, and mm-hmm. you got yourself through that. You know, mm-hmm. and sounds like in large part by refocusing your energy onto something positive and and making something that has real positive impact and yeah. giving yourself back that sense of purpose and creating a sense of purpose inside of this chronic illness situation so i really yes. commend you for that that's really powerful
1: thank you
0: what an amazing story i mean wow <laughs> you've been through so much and you know it's something interesting for me about this podcast is that I have had to tell my story to doctors so many times from the beginning to the end because we still don't have a diagnosis for me. And I'm, I have trauma around doing that. You know, having yes. to sit down yep. and tell my story is traumatic. And I ask people to do that every week on this show. <laughs> but it's different because, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not a, a, I'm not a doctor. I say that all the time. I am not a doctor. I can't help. You know, I'm just here to listen and yeah. I, I feel like when I, the thing that I didn't get throughout that history was being able to tell that story to someone who was just listening. You know, I feel like it's a little different, but it is. But I do feel sometimes I feel a little guilty of asking people to tell their story that they have had to tell the doctors over and over in this setting. Um, but you just did a really amazing job.
1: Yeah, I'll just put this out there. I am not traumatized by sharing the story with you and our listeners here today. (laughs) I I I I, I have processed a lot of that pain, and I am just here to try and help other people. And I will share my story over and over and over again if it is going to help other people.
0: Yeah, well, I felt a real kinship with your story, you know, listening to you talk. Completely different symptoms and, you know, different illnesses, but that journey of searching and having to continue to exist without knowing what's wrong with you and mm-hmm. then in your case finding out what the answers are but then still having to fight to find the right medications yeah. you know sometimes just existing is a fight and sometimes yes. just doing the bare minimum basics is such a struggle and yes. to get to that point where you're doing it and to feel the gratitude for the for whatever it is that you can achieve Um, Like that is such a powerful, overwhelming sensation because you'll often think back to your younger self and how that person would not feel this gratitude for making dinner right now. Like Mm -hmm. I was able to go do some yard work for the first time in like 15 years. I mean, I haven't had a yard to work on. Uh, My partner and I are moving to a new house and we haven't moved in quite yet. Uh, But, you know, I went over to try to rake up some of the leaves and trim back one of the bushes And I, the whole time I was in awe that I was able to do it because I have not, you know, been able to be physical like that in so Mm -hmm. long. And I used to look at doing yard work as the biggest chore in the world, you know?
1: (laughs) Nobody wanted to spend their weekend doing yard work, right?
0: Yeah. And now I'm just like, oh my God, this is pure bliss. I'm outside. I'm using my body. I'm doing something where I can see the result immediately. And I just... It was an absolutely bizarre feeling. I was so grateful to be doing it. And if you look at me in my early 20s, the last time I lived in a house uh, when I had to like water a lawn or trim back things, it was always such a chore. Like you have to drag me out there. Sometimes I'd kind of like it while I was doing it. But just the thought of doing it was just, you know, I don't want to do that. I want to do what I want to do. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's just fascinating how being sick all the time changes your priorities. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I'm i so impressed by your resilience and your perseverance. Um, I've loved talking to you today. Like I said, I feel this, you know, there's this particular feeling I get talking to other people who are chronically ill and mm-hmm. just feeling just seen, you know, just by hearing your story, I feel like my story makes more sense. So, I really, really appreciate um everything you've shared with us today. But before we go, um, I have to ask my, my favorite last question, which is, you know, given everything that you've learned about uh, your body and chronic illness and your journey, if you could go back in time and address yourself in your early 20s when you're maybe partying and, you know, having drinks and maybe a cigarette or two, and what would you tell that person? And I know that it's like really hard to make yourself listen in your early twenties, but you know, if you could give yourself a message back in time about what you've learned about your own body and your journey, what would it be?
1: Uh, Oh, wow. That is a loaded question. Um, I think that I would go back and tell myself two things. Number one, listen to your body Um, because I often used getting to the weekend and having drinks as a way to, like, not deal with the pain, right? Drinking takes away the pain. Mm. So for me, I think it would be telling myself, number one, to start listening to your body and, like, paying attention to the pain. And number two, I would tell myself to uh, stand up to the male doctors who ignore, dismiss, or gaslight me. Mm.
0: Wow. That's so important. And that's a scary thing to do to stand up to Mm -hmm. a doctor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Great advice. Um, Heather, thank you so much for your time today. Please tell our listeners where we can go to find you to find your book, your social media, anything like that.
1: Absolutely. Um, If you go to www.spoonyselfcare.ca, you can find me there. It has links to all my socials. It has information about the book and where to buy it. Um, it's available on Amazon, Canada and U.S. And um, if anybody wants a personalized signed copy of the book, maybe for themselves or for a special somebody for the holidays coming up, um, I do have a listing inside of my Etsy shop um, where people can order a personalized copy as well.
0: Awesome. Sounds great. And I will tag you on uh, TikTok and Instagram if Thank you. anyone wants to f- have an easy way to get in touch with you. Um, Well, thank you so much for not just sharing your story, but for teaching us about a bunch of diseases, a few of which I, I knew almost nothing about and that we haven't covered on the show before. So an incredible job today. Thank you so much for your time and for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Major Pain. I'm Jesse Mercury, your host and the producer of this podcast. Artwork by Egg Salad Salad. Our theme music is the song Time Machine, from my sci-fi synth-pop album available at jessemercury.bandcamp.com. Send your thoughts or questions to our email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use that address to find us on PayPal. Tips are greatly appreciated. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Find more information about this show or leave a comment on any episode at our website, majorpainpodcast.com. Pain podcast.